getting near the end of Deuteronomy. This is the 29th chapter of Deuteronomy, a series of speeches that Moses gave to the people on the brink of entering the promised land. And in this speech, Moses is talking to the people as they renew the covenant that God has made with them through Moses. And this begins in verse 10 of chapter 29. All you who are standing here today in the presence of the Lord, leaders, chief men, uh, officials, and all together with all the men of Israel, your children and your wives, and the foreigners who live among you this day, who carry your water and chop your wood. All of you stand in the presence of the Lord this day to be, are standing here to begin a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant that you will be his people and he will be your God just as he promised to you and to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant with oath that I'm making with you today is not with you only who are standing here in the presence of the Lord, but with those who are not here today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. What if God called a meeting and nobody showed up? Well, it didn't happen in this meeting. Chapter 29, Moses says God's called a meeting to renew the covenant and everybody is there. The elders, the leaders, the chief men, uh, the, all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, the foreigners who live among you who, who carry your water and who chop your wood. And then at the end, says Moses, and those who are not with us today are included. One of the rabbinical interpretations of this passage is that when Moses and the people made this covenant with God, that all the future generations were there, all the souls of the children that would be born who would come under this covenant of that had been made between God and Moses and Moses' people. Hard to know if that's what happened, but suffice to say, everybody who could be there, everybody living with them was there. Now, what if God called a meeting today and nobody showed? Well, we're not there yet, though evidence indicates in parts of Europe it's pretty close to that. Uh, Many places in Europe today, uh, cathedrals this large and larger uh, sit by and large empty Even in our country, we seem to be heading a little bit in that direction. You know the statistics. You know that our worship, while not at an all-time low, is certainly at a low for the last several decades in terms of participation uh, when people come to the weekly worship service. But if you go past that, just to membership in general, I uh, saw um, a talk online this week, and the speaker was saying that for 45 years in a row, the United Methodist Church has lost members. And he said, that's bothersome. But he said, here's what's more bothersome. Uh, um, According to people who make these projections, the death rate in the United States, which is to be relatively constant from 2003 to 2018, will start to spike. And there will be a huge increase in the number of people who are dying as boomers my age and and older and younger uh, progress in life. And that spike, he called it a death wave or death tsunami, will go all the way to 2050. 
And chiefly, say people who make the studies, the deaths will be among older, non-Hispanic whites. Chiefly, the constituents of the United Methodist Church. So I did the math and figured out if I was going to escape the death tsunami, I'd have to live to be 95. What are the odds? So even the membership that's declining will continue to decline. Well, well, let's look at the generation maybe behind us. People in their 20s and early 30s. Studies of people in their 20s and early 30s show that their participation in the Christian faith is 30% lower than it was in the days of the social revolution of the late 60s and early 70s. When everybody was uh, dropping out, we're even dropping out faster than that today. Well, what about our children, our teenagers? Most recent studies indicate that 51% of the children who are in churches today in North America will abandon the faith of their childhood by the time they reach young adulthood. It's not looking so great. What if God called a meeting? Nobody came. But I was challenged this week when I read a theologian that said, you know, it's not really the quantity of the numbers that are decreasing in North America that bother me, he said. What bothers me is the quality of the faith that those of us who are here seem to be practicing. And he pointed out that that the sort of garden variety, mainstream, mainline Protestant in North America practices a faith that really amounts to just be nice to other people. And God just wants you to be happy. And God is here to help you be happy. And your happiness is your main goal in life. Well, those are interesting concepts, but none of them are in the Bible. And he says that the faith that we're practicing currently just doesn't look like the biblical faith at all. And he says that's what's troubling to him. So what if God called a meeting, people showed up, but they showed up with their own agenda? We'll tell you what we believe, God. We'll tell you what we want to do and what we don't want to do, what we'll accept and what we won't accept. Are we moving that direction? Could be. I came across a book by accident in the Trinity Library. It just got published uh, a few months ago. It's by a woman at Princeton. Her name is uh, Kenda Creasy-Dean. And she spends her life working and studying uh, youth in, uh, in churches, working with them. And she did, uh, they did a national youth survey in 2009 and 10. And she's interpreting the results in this book. And the book is called Almost Christian. It's named after a sermon that West, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, actually preached two centuries ago. It's based on Paul goes to King Agrippa, tries to convert King Agrippa. King Agrippa sort of taunts Paul by saying, well, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Well, Wesley took that scripture to say there are a lot of people running around England here in the 18th century who have the name of Christian, but they don't really practice any of the Christian practices. They're really almost Christian. And she said when she studied teenagers in North America today, that's pretty much what she found. She said, let me save you the trouble reading the book. On the very first page, she said, I'll tell you what I found in our survey. She said, we found that teenagers today are fine theoretically with faith. It just doesn't concern them very much at all. And then she added, and it hasn't proved durable enough to go past high school. Think of the 55-plus confirmands we had last Sunday. Where will they be in five years? 
according to Dean's study, it won't be as a part of people practicing the Christian faith. That's troubling to me because I think you can make a case that the main interest for Moses in the five books of the Torah, as well as the main interest for Jesus in the New Testament, is children. And children picking up the faith of their parents. Look at what Moses says in the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, we say it and then we stop. And then we add what Jesus said, which is love your neighbors as yourself. But if you stayed on in Deuteronomy, the next verse is, impress these things on your children. Talk about them when you go to bed. Talk about them when you get up. Talk about them when you're on the road. Put them on your head. Put them on your wrist. Put them on your doorpost. It was all about getting the children to buy into the parents' faith. At the Passover, the youngest person at the table asked the question, why is this night different from all the other nights? And then we find Jesus in the New Testament taking the children that the disciples want to turn away. And he welcomes them and blesses them, we're told. And then gives this warning also in the Gospels that anyone who leads a little one astray is going to face big consequences. It would be better for them if they had a millstone around their neck and they're thrown into the sea. Children have always been a primary interest of the biblical faith because it's cliche, but it's true. The faith is always one generation from not being there. All we need is a generation of children who say, no, I don't think so. I don't believe that. No, I'm not going to do that. And by and large, God calls a meeting. Nobody shows. Troubling indeed. What are we to do? Well, one of the things that churches in America tend to do is they put a lot of resources, volunteers, staff, money, into programs for children and youth. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But I think if Moses were here, Moses would say, well, not so fast. Moses would know that it's more about not the program, but actually the parents and the grandparents. You know, programs have limitations, no matter how good they are. um, When I'm texting, you probably have the same thing on my iPhone, you know, and I'll type the first three letters, and then it'll fill in a word for me. I don't know if you're like me. You get the most interesting words that you never meant to say. I was texting somebody the other day, and I was going to talk about devotion, and I got devil. I didn't want to say that. It was a program. And the names, whenever I text or email somebody's name, last name, it hates it. Sometimes their first name it hates. That's no name, it says to me. Doesn't know anything personally. The biblical faith, if it's anything, is intensely personal. Isaiah says that God has our name written on God's palm. We're down. Where is it that we are known most intensely and most personally? Isn't it even, isn't it in our own homes? Isn't that really it? Dean, in her study, and I mentioned she teaches at Princeton and at seminary, but anyway, Dean in her study said this, the fact of the matter is most youth ministry is not done by youth ministers. Most youth ministry, she said, is done by the parents. And it's done there in the home. So what are we to do? Jack up the number of morning devotionals with our kids? Put them in a Christian school? Yeah, that's fine, fine. But that's not what Moses said. 
Moses said, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you go to bed. Talk about them when you get up. Talk about them when you're walking. And then you live it in front of them. You put it on your doorpost. You put it on your head, forehead. You put it on your wrist. Basically, Moses said, you want your kids to know this stuff? Live it. This was Dean's interesting conclusion. She said, when we studied the faith of the American teenager today, what we found is that there was no difference in their faith and the faith of their parents. That that most of their parents believed the same thing. The idea was just to be nice to each other, and God should be there for our happiness, and if God can't make us happy, well, let's don't bother. It wasn't a biblical faith at all. She indicated that most children not only learn the faith from their parents, They can't go past their parents normally in their practice of faith. So really, it doesn't start with a children's ministry or a pastor or the youth program. It really, it it starts with us. And it starts with us not so much maybe talking about it, but, but living it as we talk about it. Probably four or five morning devotionals at the table with the kids is great every week. But how much greater to see you take a stand for something Christ has called you to do. To handle a person the way that he would have handled them. And they watch you do this. How valuable is that? See, the fact of the matter is that most of us learn best just watching other people. That's how we learn a lot of our stuff. Edmund Burke, in the great British um, a writer and uh, statesman, two centuries ago said, no matter what college we go to, every one of us gets enrolled in the school of example. He said, we just learn from our environment. Fred Craddock, one of my favorite teachers, says it a little differently. He said, most of us learn best through indirect communication. In other words, when somebody's like lecturing us like this, we, we tend to have a shield you know, when I'm like this with my kids, I kind of know my, I'm sort of limited in what's getting across. But when they see me or overhear me, see me do something or overhear me interacting with someone else, then the defenses and shields are down and it starts to penetrate. Uh, one way I can think of this, and I apologize mothers on Mother's Day, this is kind of, this is my dad, father's example but I hope uh, it'll make some sense to you. Last October, Texas Rangers beat the New York Yankees so that for the first time in their history, they went to the World Series. I've been following the Texas Rangers since I was in high school, since they moved to Arlington from Washington, D.C. I have taken my kids every year at least once to Arlington to go to a baseball game. I've been at family dinners and pulled out my phone to, to check the score while everyone else at the table is ordering. I've sat there and watched countless innings, countless games. Well, at the moment that the Rangers were about to win and the moment they did win, I got texts and phone calls from my two kids who don't live at home immediately, from my former intern who lives in another state, and from Scott Hare at Riverside. I didn't tell any of them to watch the game. I didn't pull him aside and say, you know, this is very important to me. You know, it's an important part of your life that you learn about baseball. I never did, never had that lecture. Didn't send him an email, said 7 o'clock tonight, game's on, Fox. They knew. Not from what I said, but just from watching me year after year after year. I think that's a lot how faith works. 
it's not just what we say, it's what they observe us doing all the time. And if they observe us following devotedly Christ, there's a better chance they'll do it. Now, let me say this, though. I got three kids. And uh, the oldest one will call home every Sunday evening from where he lives. And when he calls tonight, he'll, you know, I'm sure he'll talk with his mom about Mother's Day. And then when I get on the phone, one of the first things out of his mouth, he'll talk about the Rangers and what they're doing. And he'll lament that the game perhaps this week or one of the games wasn't on in his TV market. And we'll go on and on and break down what's happening with certain players and what's going on. Now, at the 11 o'clock service, my other two sons will be sitting on this side usually. And one of them has defected to the Boston Red Sox. I don't know why exactly. How? I guess it's worse. He could have gone over to Bale. But he went that way. And then my other son, yeah, he likes the Rangers, but he doesn't see any sense in sitting there and watching an entire nine-inning game. He's got a lot better things to do with his life. All three of them essentially raised the same father the same way. Three different responses. Friends, what you're doing with your children and your grandchildren is great. The fact that you're here today speaks mounds to them. This is not about guilt. This is about the fact that every person in the world gets to make a choice about their walk with Christ. And even will get, hopefully, if they haven't made a right choice, will get a chance to change that choice. And you don't control that choice. God wouldn't have given us the law. God wouldn't have given us Jesus if there weren't an option to not follow the law or to not follow Jesus. We have a choice. And you and I are not 100% responsible for the choices that our kids make. I'm simply suggesting that if we want to give them a good shot, at what we believe is the right choice, then we live it. Not out of guilt, but out of love, because we want them to love who and what we love.